drawing room over here. Oh, hey, come on in. When you read a book or you watch a movie, you'll notice that the conversations have a particular flow. It's not just that everyone is capable of the sort of clever comebacks that you or I tend to think of, you know, when the moment is over. They're also missing the placeholders that shape daily speech, the ums, the mm, 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 all of that sort of stuff. But if we prefer to watch the perfect conversation, why can't we actually create it ourselves? Nick Enfield is a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney and the author of a new book, How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. And he argues that there's actually a lot of value in those bad words. Nick, welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So what are the typical elements of a conversation? The typical elements of a conversation would uh, really start with turn-taking, as it's sometimes called, the to and fro of questions and responses and greetings and greetings back and requests and sort of grantings of requests. Conversations really grounded in that, that to and fro, so um, a lot of things follow from that really because essentially it's a bit like going for a walk together or any other kind of joint action, you are kind of committing yourselves to the to the interaction and the to and fro needs to be handled um, in certain ways. And that's, that's a lot of what I look at in the book is how people handle that to and fro. Is there a common way that people handle it? Is it sort of an issue of waiting for a certain amount of time for people to have their turn before you can take your turn? What we find is actually people finally time their conversations back and forth, you know, when, when, when you stop and when I pick up my turn, people are very good at finally timing that. And it's not the case that we wait. What we're really doing is anticipating in quite particular ways, the, how the other person's turn is going to end. And we are able to sort of gear up and come in with our response or with our next sort of contribution with, with a very fine, um, lack of overlap, if you like. So if you measure the amount of time that it takes for someone to take up the floor when the other person stops and go back uh, to the first person, the average transition time is about 200 milliseconds. It's just a fifth of a second passes between the, the average kind of uh, transition of turn taking. So it's a very finely timed system and it requires uh, quite a lot of mental energy to keep it going. So how do we do that? How do we anticipate it all correctly? Because you know, getting it wrong can be embarrassing. You don't want to be kind of uh, dominating a conversation or not contributing enough. I mean, these are sort of social etiquette rules as well around all of this. Yeah, there's a that's a big part of it. I guess we do it in two ways. I mean, one is that we obviously, if all's going well and we're doing our part, we pay attention to what the other person's saying and we stay on track with where we think they're going and we have a lot of experience with language and, you know, we're able to sort of feeling in a lot of blanks before they, they come up. So by sort of being committed to the conversation itself, we're quite good at predicting where people are going and, and using clues from the way they speak, from their grammar and their intonation and so forth, how uh, they're probably going to complete their, their turn. But the other big part of what we do is we have these backup systems where, you know, if something goes wrong, we if we miss cue or we come in too early or... There's too much of a gap when we when we thought the other person was still going. We have these mechanisms for handling that. So these mechanisms that I write about in the book using the term repair, 
for doing things like saying, huh, or, you know, excusing yourself for coming in at a certain point that, that wasn't appropriate and so forth. And so when these, these two things work together, um, you know, that's what we really need to keep conversation on track. How much does this change between languages or, or cultures? Your research in the book shows almost half a second of difference in response time between Japanese and Danish speakers, which is kind of really fascinating. There is that difference of uh, something like half a second between, say, you know, the average response time of a Japanese speaker and the average response time of a Danish speaker. But after all, it's only half a second. It's not, you know, 10 seconds or 20 seconds. Half a second is quite a long time in terms of our sort of psychological processes. Um, you know, we think pretty fast and we can we can send signals to our body pretty fast. So that that is a difference that matters, but it's a lot less than than people would normally think. So in the work that I've done and that I talk about in the book, it's it's very much about comparing cultures. And essentially the message there is that if you go around the world and record everyday conversations in far-flung places as as we did from, from West Africa to New Guinea to Ecuador, you find that actually things work a lot more similarly than you might expect with respect to the, the turn-taking system and these kinds of, you know, mechanisms of repair. On RN, I'm Patricia Carvelis and Nick Enfield is my guest in the drawing room and we're talking about talking. Do you like how I did that? We're talking about talking. I'm leaving some cues for you. Um, hmm, okay. Um, you talk about the social pact or the moral obligation of a conversation. What do you mean by that? Well, before I mentioned um, the sort of comparison with the idea of going for a walk together, and, you know, this is an example from the philosopher Margaret Gilbert who said, you know, look at joint action as being a kind of fundamental thing about human life. And what she meant by joint action was, you know, if we do something very simple like go for a walk together, we've got an obligation to each other. So she, in her example, she says, well, if, if one of the two people starts to sort of walk ahead, and that's a bit of a problem, right? The first person can kind of give them a, a, a mild rebuke and say, hey, you're going a bit fast, slow down. And her point is that even with something as simple as going for a walk together, you've signed up to cooperate with that other person. If they're just telling you what happened on the bus that morning, you, you're basically saying, I'm committing myself to, to hearing out your story, to paying attention to you and signaling that attention throughout to giving you the response that you know, you're probably looking for when you get to the punchline. All of that is really... A social commitment. And, and when I write that you're morally um, accountable to that, you know, I give examples where people kind of call each other out for simple stuff like not answering their question or answering someone else's question on their behalf and things like that. And you see when you actually examine recordings of people that they do hold each other accountable for sort of breaking the conventions of the agreement of a conversation. So it's not just the case that a conversation is one person talking and then the other person talking. It's really uh, what I refer to as a joint activity. What happens when someone breaks that social pact regularly? Does it does it matter? What are the consequences? Well, I think it matters a lot. Um, you know, I think the simplest uh, consequence is that it affects people's relationships and it affects their reputation. You know, people might say, "Oh, that person's a jerk," or you know, they never shut up or they never talk. I can't, I can't have an enjoyable conversation with them. You know, obviously, different people have different styles, and I suppose when people get on well, there's a sense in which they kind of might be well calibrated. They might have a similar sort of rhythm to conversation, if you like. But if you don't 
do your part in a conversation if you don't sort of hold up your commitments and you don't allow yourself to be accountable to those things. I think the consequences in the end can be quite quite extreme. So the sociologist Irving Goffman, who who did a lot of seminal work in this in this area, um, you know, he argued that the consequences in the end are that you will um, be ostracised from from society. And 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 his view was that you know, oftentimes when people are regarded as um, you know mentally ill, it might not be. Well, one of the sort of signals, one of the reasons why that that sort of diagnosis can come about is that people just aren't following kind of the standard rules. Do we relax the social pact with people that we're very close to or with, that we trust? Well, that's a that's an interesting question. It's a pretty hard to kind of measure um, how that would be. You know, I feel like the answer is probably going to be no. Um, you know, a social pact is a social pact and, you know, you, your expectations that others will cooperate with you never really go away. So if you're in a conversation, you know, as I said, a simple thing that I write about quite a bit in the book is is uh, the matter of asking questions. And we ask questions if you just record an everyday conversation in the home. Um, very simple things like, have you seen the chopping knife? Um, that's a question and it sets up obligations where, you know, you can't just ignore that. If you do ignore it, probably I'm going to assume you didn't hear and, you know, we have a system, a mechanism where you might say something like, huh, and I'll repeat it and we can sort of save the moment um, that way. But I think that even in our closest relationships, maybe even more so in those, um, it's expected that, that, you know, that you're kind of going to do your part. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that, you know, our, our most trusted people are exempt. They're probably held more closely accountable to these rules. So, Nick, those filler words I mentioned in the introduction, you know, um or mm, hmm, you know, as you're listening. Yep. Why do we use them and what's their value? Because I, I kind of need tips here. I keep telling my <laughs> kids not to um and I'm kind of trained them out of umming. Was that a bad thing to do? Well, if you've trained them out of umming, you know, it might mean that you've made them more fluent and they've become perfect articulators of what they want to say and they never have to signal that they've got any kind of delay coming up. If that's what you've done, then congratulations. I think that's fantastic. Uh, but, you know, um and ah uh, and these kinds of words do have an important function. What they're doing in the sort of high speed to and fro of interaction is that they're signaling to the other person you know, I'm not delaying because of any other reason. I'm just having some kind of problem uh, finding the word I'm looking for, for example, or trying to phrase what I want to say. So in the sort of high speed to and fro where you're expecting someone should be talking, you know, we don't like to let more than about a second pass, um, a second of silence pass without someone saying something. And within that frame, that's when we'll start to say things like um and ah, uh, they serve this function of letting the other person know there's some kind of um, delay. Now, that might seem obvious to listeners, of course, but what it does is it gives the listener, you know, some reliable information about, about what's going on essentially in your head. The other forms that you just mentioned have a quite a different function, and those are things like the, you know, the sort of feedback signals like, uh-huh, mm-hmm that you use as a listener in interaction. And these are really important, actually. And, you know, in the book, I talk about an experiment that Janet Bavilis, a psychologist, a Canadian psychologist, did. She brought people into the studio and had them just tell strangers um, stories of kind of near misses that they had, you know, that sort of it, just personal experiences. And I'd start telling you a personal experience and naturally you're going to start 
listening and saying, uh-huh, mm-hmm. And what she did in a, one condition, she asked the listeners to um, just listen for the letter T. Any word that started with the letter T, then they should press a button under the desk. And what this did is it actually sort of took the person's attention off the story that they were being told. So suddenly all of their ahas and mm-hmms went out of whack. They either didn't produce enough of them or they produced them in the wrong place because they were too busy concentrating on, on something that was kind of irrelevant. And the effect of this was that the speakers suddenly became much less fluent. They became, uh, you know, their storytelling sort of de- became, you know, deteriorated. They were less fluent. They had to go back and sort of retell the interesting part because the, the uptake wasn't being produced in the right place. And, and the conclusion there, which I, which I talk about in the book and I, and I agree with, is that essentially in conversation, the two people act as one in a kind of way. They really sort of depend on each other for the fluency of how they talk. And it's not the case that you've just got these two sort of individuals speaking at each other. So that example shows that these little feedback markers, how, how little they, they seem, actually perform a really quite important function. Sometimes my own sort of, it's my own observation, but in terms of how I've used the ums and the ha and the, you know, those various versions, is kind of a fear of silence as well. Do we fear silence in conversations? Yeah, I think we do. Um, Silence is obviously awkward in a certain way. uh, And I think that that's what you sign up for when you get into a conversation is to really that... You know, silence uh, is dangerous in that sense is that by definition, it means that there isn't anything to say and it, it's uncomfortable. But I think this is this is one of those places where people who are closely related to each other, have intimate relations, you know, live together. That's obviously where you do have to be comfortable with silence. It's really quite a, we go to a lot of effort to avoid it, in fact. And, and, and if you're looking at things like telephone conversations, I have a chapter in the book on the what we call the one second window, and that that's a rule in conversation that's pretty pretty strong, applies pretty strongly, and that is that we tend not to allow more than one second of silence go by before you know we try to do something. We either repeat what we just said, or we extend what we're saying, or you know something has to happen. But but people are pretty much allergic to silence in the middle of conversation. That's right, they are. Let's not be allergic to silence anymore. Nick, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. Nick Enfield has been my guest in the drawing room. He's a professor of linguistics at the University of Sydney and the author of a new book, How We Talk, The Inner Working of Conversations.